0: All right, well it is good to be with you guys today. Welcome to the Austin Stone. Um, I'm So glad you're here on a Sunday morning. Uh, did you guys see the bright burning yellow disk in the sky on the way over here? It's called the sun, hadn't seen it. It feels like six months. So we're glad you're here in church. You could, uh, I figured we wouldn't have many people here this morning with the sun out, you'd be skipping. But uh, open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew, we're continuing through our series on the Beatitudes. <clears throat> and uh, we're in Matthew chapter five, verse five today. And uh, Matthew five, five. So <clears throat> quick reminder in case you've missed the last couple of weeks as we've been going through the Beatitudes together. A couple things that Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes. He started the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and the first thing he's doing with the Beatitudes is he's describing a list of actions and attitudes that are gonna show up in the life of a believer. So he's saying, hey, this new kingdom has come, and we're the citizens of this new kingdom. He's the king, we're the kingdom citizens, and he's saying these are gonna be the attributes and the attitudes of our new kingdom citizens, of the new kingdom citizens. And the other thing he's doing is he's saying this is the path to happiness for those of us who are new kingdom citizens. Each one of the Beatitudes starts with a phrase, blessed, which is a phrase that means the highest form of happiness, or the highest form of blessing. That's what that word means. And so Jesus is saying that the highest form of happiness and blessing that you can experience as a human being is found when you walk in and live out these Beatitudes. That's the claim. All right, so he's saying this is what we're going to look like as Christians, and he's saying this is how we find happiness. That's what he's doing. All right, so we're in the third week of our series, and so we're at the third Beatitude today, so let's look at it together. Matthew 5, 5. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, the first one was blessed are the poor in spirit for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Last week we talked about blessed are those who mourn over their sin. For Jesus, he says, they'll be comforted. And today he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now what does that mean? So before we talk about what meekness um, means, uh, or whether what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what it means. And then at the end of the sermon, we'll talk about how it applies to our lives. So if you're taking notes, here's kind of the definition of the word meekness. It's a it's a pretty un, um, under, misunderstood word, rather, in our culture. The word meek comes from the Greek word pros. And it means this. It means power under control. The word meek actually means power under control. That's the word that Jesus uses. That word prose, the word that Jesus uses, it was a Greek word that was commonly used for a broken horse. If you had a horse that was a broken horse, they would say that 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 horse was praus. okay? So so as a wild horse is extremely powerful, but it's absolutely out of control. A wild horse has incredible power, but it's absolutely out of control. A wild horse is guided by only one thing. It's guided by its own will and its own passions. But a meek horse, a, a broken horse, the word that Jesus uses, listen, A broken horse is a horse that has the same amount of power as a wild horse, but a broken horse's power is under control. A broken horse's power is under control and it's not being utilized for its own will and its own passions and its own desires, but a broken horse's power, which is the same as a wild horse, but it's now being utilized for the good of something else, which is the rider of that horse, okay? That's what Jesus is saying. Meekness means power under control, okay? Now, it's a common misconception that meekness is a synonym of weakness, that meekness and weakness are the same thing, but that's a misconception. They're not the same thing. As a matter of fact, weakness is the opposite of meekness. It's it's literally impossible for a weak person to be meek, and here's why I say that. Because meekness can only be displayed when a person is actually powerful, but when they use that power uh, for the benefit of others and to build up other people and not for themselves, so it's impossible for a weak person to be meek. Because meek people must be powerful. That's how do they use their power, right, for good, for the good of those and others. So Jesus here is literally saying that the fullest extent that a person can experience happiness here on this planet is when they keep their power under control for the good and for the benefit of others, and not necessarily for themselves, okay? So that's what meekness means. It's kind of a weird word. We don't use it a lot. A lot of times it has negative connotations, but it's actually really positive, okay? Now, before we talk about what that looks like for us and how we do it and how we apply it, I want to give you a couple of reasons why this particular beatitude is harder, it's, it's, uh, it's arguably harder to live out than the first two that we've talked about so far. Because in the first two Beatitudes, you're dealing with and you're relating to yourself and with God, and that's it. Okay, you've got, you've got blessed are the poor in spirit. That's God revealing to you your sinfulness. And then you're relating back to God and saying, yeah, I'm poor in spirit. You've got blessed are those who mourn. That once you realize you're poor in spirit, that you mourn your sin before the Lord. The first two Beatitudes are just you vertically dealing with your heart and with God. But the third Beatitude changes, it starts to shift. And the third Beatitude you start dealing with and relating to other people. And that's a lot harder, amen? When you start having to deal with other people and how you respond to them and relate to them it's a lot harder. Horizontal encounters are always more difficult. <clears throat> and so if, if y'all, y'all are probably with me here, but when God reveals my sin to me, that's okay. I don't have a problem with that because he's God, he can do whatever he wants to. But when my wife reveals my sin to me, that's a lot harder to deal with. That's a lot tougher on my flesh. It's those horizontal encounters with other people that the beatitude of meekness, That the the beatitude of of power under control for the good of others starts to be applied. And that's a lot easier said than it is done. Now, um, the other reason why this beatitude could arguably arguably be harder (coughs) than the previous two is I think there's a temptation um, in a sermon like this for many of us to start thinking about how other people or other groups of people need to start applying meekness. When we hear the definition of meekness, it's power that's not used like a wild horse for your own passions and benefits, but it's power under control for the good of others. I, if you have a boss or you have a roommate or you have a husband or a wife that, that, that utilizes their power for their own benefit, it's so easy to start thinking, hey, what you need to do is, is, is that guy needs to do this or that guy needs to do that or this group of people needs to do this, but resist that temptation. Resist that temptation. Let the Holy Spirit reveal to you today where you need to apply meekness in your life. Jesus does not say, blessed are you if other people are meek. He said, blessed are you if you're meek. And so let the Holy Spirit apply it to you. Okay, so I want to begin by kind of, when I'm describing what this is going to look like in our lives, meekness, I want to talk about what it's not. What meekness does not look like. And so if meekness is power under control for the benefit of others, then the opposite of meekness would be uncontrolled power or power that's used primarily for your own benefit, okay? So someone that's showing a lack of meekness could be as simple as somebody that loses their temper or it could be as extreme as somebody like Hitler, okay? You've got Hitler back in the 1930s that began to amass an incredible amount of political and military power. But what did he do with that power? He used that power not for the benefit of humanity, but he used that power to absolutely conquer and destroy Europe. And so he was literally trying to inherit the earth, as Jesus said, but not through meekness, but through power, right? Now hopefully, most of you guys aren't, aren't Hitler, so let's dial it back a little bit and bring it a little closer to home. Here's what meekness what is not. Just say you're on Facebook or you're on Twitter or something like that, or maybe you're just sitting around a table with a group of people. <clears throat> and somebody says something that's insensitive or somebody says something that's insulting or, or maybe they say something that you fundamentally disagree with, but then you respond to them in a way where you, you shame them. You, you respond to them uh, where you shout them down. You respond to them in a way like our worship leader, Aaron Ivey says, that he slays them with vicious rhetoric. Okay, you, you, uh, it's the opposite of meekness. It, it doesn't mean that you're somebody's footstool, but what it does mean is that when someone sins against you with words, that you don't respond to them with sinful words. Okay, you control your power for the benefit of other people. Or if you're married, maybe you're a husband and your wife isn't acting the way you want her to. Or maybe she isn't meeting your physical needs the way that you think she should. And so you respond in anger. You use harsh words. Or maybe you even use silence to try to conform her to the behavior that you think is best Okay, that's using your power, not for the benefit of your wife, but that's using your power for your own benefit. That's the opposite of meekness. Okay, now let's flip it. Say so you're married and you're a wife, you're a woman, and your husband is not acting the way that you think he ought to. And so what you do is you withhold physical intimacy from him as a punishment for him to get him to conform to the way that you think he ought to behave. Okay, that's the opposite of meekness, that's using the power that you have not for your husband's benefit but for your own benefit. Okay, that's not meekness. Okay, let's say you, you have a boss or let's say you are a boss and you have employees. Let's say you're a coach of a team or let's say you're a teacher of students and you use the volume of your voice or intimidation to try to get those beneath you to perform at a level you want them to. That's the opposite of meekness. That's power, not under control. I could go on and on and on. I could give you all these examples. But I wanna give you an example in my own life of when I have just absolutely failed miserably at displaying meekness or power under control for the benefit of others. Um, Years ago, when I started the stone, um, or really before I started the stone, I I took a church planning class at seminary. And um, I had been praying for a couple years about the opportunity to plan a church, but I was just kind of waiting for God to open the door. And what I did is I took a, a church planning class at seminary, and it was during that church planning class at seminary, and after I'd been praying for a couple of years, we assessed for church planning. They did this test for church planning, and I scored really well on it. And so the professor of the class said, hey, man, I want you to know you scored really well on this church planning assessment test. I'd like to take you to lunch. And so he took me to lunch, and he sat me down, and he said, listen, man, you scored really well. The, the seminary's church planning organization would like to give you the opportunity to plan a church through us because you scored really well. We'd love to have you. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this is incredible. God's answered my prayer. I've been praying about this for two years. He's finally answered my prayer. And then this seminary professor guy looks at me and he says, by the way, um, where do you work? He kind of started interviewing me. He's like, okay, we're going to play a church with you. You need to know some things about it. He goes, where are you pastor for church? And at the time, I was an associate pastor at the Woodlands United Methodist Church um, in the Woodlands, Texas. I'd been a youth pastor for a long time, and the last job I had before I planted the stone was an associate pastor at Woodlands United Methodist Church, a great church in the Woodlands. It's incredibly biblically based. They love people, love the Lord, love God's word. It's a great church. But here's the thing you need to understand is that this was a Baptist seminary that I was going to. And Baptists and Methodists are like brothers that don't like each other. Okay? Uh, same family, but they don't like each other. And so I'm going to a Baptist seminary. And when he asked me what church I was working at, and I told him Woodlands United Methodist Church, it was like walking into a bar and then the jukebox screeches to a halt. He looked at me, and the first thing that came out of his mouth when I said Woodlands United Methodist, he, he looked at me, he literally said, Why? I was like, What do you mean, why? He said, Why are you working at a Methodist church? I said, Because God called me to. And he said, I, I'm sorry, I, I just don't understand. You work at a Methodist church? And, I was, and, I, and it kind of hit me. I was like, oh, we're having a Baptist moment here. And I was like, all right, dude, calm down. Here's the thing you need to understand. Look, my, look, my parents were Baptist, And not just, I, was, I grew up in a Baptist church. Like I was in a Baptist church nine months before I was born. And not just were my parents Baptist, but my great-grandparents were Baptist. Uh, and not, not true story, not only my my." my grandparents were Baptists, but my great-grandparents were Baptists. We've been tithing for a century to the Baptist church, right? And then I was working at the time, Chris Tomlin, famous worship leader, was working with me at the Wilderness United Methodist Church, and I'm I'm talking about tithing to the Baptist church for a century, and nothing's working, and I finally, I'm like, I'm going to drop Chris Tomlin's name. I was like, Chris Tomlin works with me at the Methodist Church, and he's like, who's Chris Tomlin? I was like, all right, forget that. Long story short, he withdrew the church planning offer on the spot, He's like, man, you work at a Methodist church, I'm sorry, M- mistake, shouldn't have done that. And I was absolutely heartbroken. Well, long story short, just a really short time after that, I, I got offered church plant um, through a different <laughs> Baptist organization, and we planted the Austin Stone here in Austin. <clears throat> and in a short time, our church Austin, became one of the fastest growing churches in the United States. For a while there, it was in the top ten of the fastest growing churches in the country. And a couple of years after that, we were still growing like crazy. We were up to like 4,000 people. And um, I was getting asked to speak at all these conferences all over the place. And I was speaking at this conference in Dallas. This is probably four years after this incident with my seminary professor. And I preached the sermon, I don't remember what I preached on, and I walked off the stage and was kinda standing there talking to people and I look up and this guy was walking towards me. And it was the seminary professor. He was coming towards me. And in my mind, I'm thinking, it's about time. This cat is coming to apologize to me for the great error of, of not choosing me as a, as a, as a church planner." This guy's gonna come and repent in dust and ashes. That's what's going through my mind. And um, now what I'm about to tell you that I did, y'all need to remember that this was a really long time ago. Um, I was young And I was dumb and I was arrogant. And I told this story about 10 years ago, a different sermon here at the Austin Stone. True story, I got an email that week that somebody's like, I I gotta leave the church. (laughs) You know, if you're that bad of a human being, I'm I'm out. So please know that I've repented deeply of the sin that I'm about to confess to you and don't leave the church, all right? Um, But this guy's coming walking up in my brain. I'm like, okay, he's coming to apologize because he realized the error of his ways. And he walks up to me. And he says, hey, my name's so-and-so. And I just want to let you know, that was, that was a great sermon. Thank you so much. That was really helpful for me. And it hit me. This cat doesn't remember me. He doesn't even know who I am. And so I look at him and I said, do you remember me? And he's like, no, 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 I don't, no, have we met? <laughs> and I was like, and this is where it gets bad, so put your seatbelt on. I was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, we have. I said, man, I was in your church planning class in seminary, and you offered me a church plant, but then you would do it because I worked at a Methodist church. And I said, your organization could have had the Austin Stone. Big mistake, huh? And I turned around and walked off. I know, it's really bad. Years later, a couple of years later, I, I, prof- I saw the guy again. I profoundly apologized to him. I really did. I said, man, I was so arrogant. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. He was incredibly gracious. But that's the opposite of meekness, right? It's you see, the power dynamic in a way had changed. <clears throat> but what I did with that change of power dynamic is, is I used my position, so to speak, of, of power and authority at that point to shame him. You know, to 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 put that guy in his place, so to speak, instead of honoring him and using that power for his benefit or good. That is the opposite of meekness, and it was a big, fat, ugly, disgusting sin. Have you ever done anything like that? Most of us, if we think uh, about it long enough, have. And when I think about that day, and when I think about how I acted toward that guy, it horrifies me. Because honestly, in that moment, my behavior was about as, far removed as Christ-like behavior as I think you can possibly get. As a matter of fact, um, when we act, I want you to hear this. When we act in a way that's in the opposite of meekness, it's not just ungodly, it's arguably downright satanic. And I'll show you what I mean by that. With the exception of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Satan is the most powerful being in the universe. Okay, with the, with, besides God, he is the most powerful being in the universe. He's not as powerful as God, but he's under the Trinity, the uncreated one. He is the most powerfully created being in the universe, okay? Um, before he fell in the angelic world, he was even more powerful than the archangel Michael. And scripture teaches us that he's beautiful, Kind of the pictures we see in the movies are not true. The the Bible describes him as beautiful. The Bible describes him as incredibly intelligent. The Bible describes him as cunning. He is unbelievably powerful. But church, here's the question. How does Satan use that intelligence, that beauty, that cunning, and that power? How does he use that power? Well, Satan uses his incredible, immense power for his own desires, he uses that incredible power to lie and deceive to get what he wants, to get his own desires. And so, listen, if you force me, if somebody said, define for me what does satanic power look like, I think, and I've thought about it, I think the best definition of what satanic power looks like is that it is the opposite of meekness. It's the opposite of meekness. Satanic power is power that's utilized for your own benefit at the expense of other people. And so what I'm going to say is a strong statement, but I'm standing by it. And I don't think you and I will ever look more like Satan than when we're not demonstrating meekness in our life. I don't think we'll ever look more like Satan is when we're utilizing, like in that moment with that seminary professor, that when I was utilizing and using the power that I had at the expense of him instead of for his benefit. Because at the same time, at the same time, I don't think you'll ever look more like Jesus I don't think you'll ever look more like Jesus than when you flip that, when you take the power that God has given you and you don't use it for your own selfish will and desires, but you utilize it for the benefit of other people. Okay, turn with me quickly to John chapter 13, verse three. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. We'll we'll have it on the screen. Turn with me quickly, John 13, three. 3. This is the night before Jesus, think about this, this is the night before Jesus would die on a cross for the sin of the world. So this is the night, right before, he's with his disciples, he's in the upper room, they're doing the Lord's Supper, and he is in just a very short time, he is going to die on a Roman cross, he's gonna be tortured, and it's gonna be to pay for the sin of the world. Now I want you to think about, for just a second, how you might be responding on that night, if you were about to die for everybody. I think most of us, if you knew that you were about to die for all of humanity, and all of humanity would be saved through this one act of your death, I think most of us would probably be bragging about it a little bit. I think most of us would probably be saying, hey, everybody, just want to, hey guys, wanna let you know I'm about to die for you, give me some props, right? You'd be taking selfies with uh, Peter, James, and John, Hashtag blessed, (laughs) hashtag redemption, hashtag three days, wait for it, right? Sending it out, make sure everybody knew what was about to happen. But watch what Jesus does. He didn't do any of that on the night before he's about to die for humanity. Watch what he does. This is uh, John 13, three. He says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God, okay? So it's all about to go down. He's about to make it happen. He's about to walk to the cross, and then he's going home. Watch what he does, 13.4. He says, Jesus knew that, but he rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, <clears throat> and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And so he's just a few hours away from literally laying down his life for the sin of all humanity. And yet the king of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, in one of his last acts, gets down on his hands and his feet He gets down on his knees and he takes off his outer garment and he did a task that was reserved for the lowest servants of that society. He washed, he took their filthy, nasty feet and he washed them. You've got the king of kings and the lord of lords for crying out loud that is washing the dirt off the feet of the people he created. It's one of the greatest displays of power under control, utilized for the benefit of others in the history of the world. It's one of the greatest displays of meekness that's ever, ever been seen. right, now look quickly at verse 12. There's something I saw in verse 13 that I've never really paid much attention to before. And I've written a commentary on this book, I missed it. Look at John thirteen twelve. It said when he washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place back at the head of the table. And he said to them, do you understand, do you understand what I've done to you? Now look at verse 13. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and your teacher have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's feet, okay? So Jesus, you know, he he washes their feet, he puts on his, his clothes, he goes back and sits at the head of the table, and then he says, hey, listen, guys, you call me teacher, and you call me Lord, and then he says, and you should call me Lord, because I am the Lord, he says, I am the Lord. He's saying, look, if there is anybody in the universe that ought to have the right to utilize their own power for their own benefit, it's me because I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's saying, you call me teacher and you call, call me Lord and you're right because that's exactly who I am. But then he says, but if I'm the Lord, if I'm God and I wash your feet, Shouldn't you do the exact same thing? And then in verse 17, watch what he says. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So here's what Jesus said. He said, look, he said, I don't care who you are. If you use your power, not to exalt yourself, but if you use your power to exalt and bless others, you will find the highest level of happiness. That's what John, or That's what Jesus said in John thirteen seven. Where have we heard that before? In Matthew five five. Let's read it again. <coughs> Blessed are the meek. Jesus said, "The highest form of happiness that you can find is when you utilize the power that God has given you to serve and to love and for the benefit of others." Okay, so in the same way, guys, that I don't think we'll ever look more like Satan, then we're using our power to tear others down and to exalt ourselves in the same way we'll never look more like Jesus than we take whatever power God has given us, whatever gifts, whatever talents, and we use them for the benefit and the exalting of others. Okay, that's what that means. Now, real quickly, what does he mean by we're gonna inherit the earth? He said, blessed are those who have their power under control, utilizing it for the benefit and the good of others, not for themselves, for they will inherit the earth. What does he mean by that? Okay, well, when he says you will inherit the earth, let's bring that verse up. Oh, it's there. He says, when you will inherit the earth, he's he's got two meanings there. He's got a future reality, and he's got a current reality. There's a future reality that those of us who are Christians, That are poor in spirit, that realize that we have no good that we can offer God, and the only way we're saved is God intervenes. Blessed are those who mourn that when we realize our absolute complete sinfulness, we mourn over our sin before the Lord, and He comforts us. And then the result of that poor in spirit and that mourning over sin is it produces a humility in us, a meekness in us, where we get to the place that we just want to use our power not for ourselves but for other people, and he says, if that's you, if that's who you are, he says, they, those are the people that are meek, he says, they will inherit the earth. He's talking about a future reality, and that future reality is the new heavens and the new earth. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Scripture teaches us that when Jesus comes back, that he destroys the current heavens, he destroys the old earth, the current earth, and the Bible says he creates a brand new earth, which is really cool. He creates this brand new earth, and it's an earth without sin. It's a brand new earth with, without disease. It's a brand new earth without conflict or without death. It's a brand new earth with no hurricanes or no flooding or no, no war or poverty or racism or famine or Twitter or cats, amen you know that the cat's the only domesticated animal that's not in the Bible? Go study that for yourself. It's not gonna be on the new earth. <laughs> I'm just kidding, it might be. But they'll be redeemed, praise God. <laughs> and he's saying that those who utilize their power on this earth to conquer and to dominate are gonna have no inheritance in the, in the new earth. But he says those that use their their power, their meekness for the benefit of the others, you're gonna receive as an inheritance that brand new earth. The scripture says you'll reign with him. And I don't know what that looks like, but that sounds pretty cool to me. So there's a future reality. We'll start landing the plane here. There's also a current reality. There's a current reality. When he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus is, again, kind of reiterating this idea that the highest and the greatest path the blessing and happiness is found through meekness that he's saying that you you actually will experience the highest form of human happiness when this comes out of your life there's a there's an inheriting there's a receiving of your earthly your godly earthly desires, he's saying, not through amassing all this stuff for yourself, but but using the things that God has given you for other people. It's like the old adage, Blessed are those who give more so than those who receive. That's what he's saying there. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how everybody on in the whole planet is on this pursuit of happiness. And it's true. There's not a single person here. There's not a single person in Austin. There's not a single person in the whole world that deep down inside doesn't wish that they were happy, that they're blessed. If they don't, something's radically wrong. All of us really and truly love and desire happiness, okay? And for the most part, what I'm realizing is that what the world does is they, they're on this pursuit of happiness but they try to find happiness by utilizing and using whatever power, whatever talents, whatever gifts, whatever influence that they might have, to gain stuff for themselves—the best stuff that the world has to offer. We talked about it last week. Hashtag blessed Lamborghinis, waffles. You know, we, we're trying to we're trying to find these blessings for ourselves by massing things through our own power and talent and giftings and and, and influence. But here's the question. Is it working? Are people finding happiness by massing for themselves things through their power and influence? Um, are Are they finding happiness there? And I think the answer is a resounding no. As a matter of fact, I think that people pursuing and trying to find happiness by utilizing the stuff that they have for their own benefit is actually producing the opposite. Of happiness and the hearts of people. I'm reading this book right now from Senator, or excuse me, Senator Ben Sass called "Them," and it's not a political endorsement. Um, don't email me. It's it's just it's a book that a friend of mine recommended, and it's really good. And it's talking about how Americans on both sides of the aisle why we're so unhappy and why we're at each other's throats, and like what, what what's the cause of that, and why there's so much unhappiness across the ideological spectrum in our country. And he argues that every every so often throughout history, there's these cataclysmic events that utterly transform the way that we live. Some of them are for good and some of them are for bad. But in the book, he argues that with the invention of computers and the internet, that we're living through uh, one of those times of radical transformation that um, just it's, a, it's, a, it's a complete radical transformation of our culture because of the digital age. And his point is that while the onset of all this innovation has made our lives easier than in any other time in history, that that same innovation is not leading us to greater connectedness or greater happiness, but that people are argu- arguably more isolated and more unhappy than at any point in our history that any of us knows about. And so I've got a, just a quick quote that I want to read to you from the book. <coughs> he said, we've, been, uh, we've become accustomed to instantaneous answers and moment-to-moment connectedness. That's talking about probably um, social media. The digital revolution is making possible what was unthinkable just 50 years ago. We're the richest, most comfortable, most connected people in human History, And that's true, by the way. And yet in the midst of this extraordinary prosperity, we're also living through a crisis. Our communities are collapsing, and people are feeling more isolated, adrift, and purposeless than ever before. Despite the astonishing medical advances and technological leaps of recent years, for the first time in our history, the average lifespan in America is in decline for the third straight year in a row. The culprit Suicide and alcohol, drug-related overdoses. We're killing ourselves, both on purpose and accidentally. These aren't deaths from famine or poverty or war. We're literally dying of despair. Man, I, I couldn't get over that phrase. It's true. We're dying of despair. That we, it's all the data, you look at all the data And it's screaming at us that you and I are living in a country that is in a crisis of unhappiness. Which is crazy when you think about it. Because we live lives of comfort and we live lives of ease that would make the kings of ancient times green with envy. Halim was telling me, Pastor Halim was telling me this one time, he said King Solomon would trade for my life tomorrow because of air conditioning and toilets and Burger King. We live lives of comfort and ease and prosperity that the kings of ancient times could not even have fathomed and yet we're less happy and less satisfied than arguably any generation before us. And so I wonder, church, if maybe it's time that we remember on this pursuit of happiness that 2,000 years ago there was a Jewish carpenter that showed up in this little backwoods town and he claimed to be God in the flesh. And he stood on the side of a mountain by the Sea of Galilee one day and this is what he said. He said, I have for you the path to happiness. I have for you the path to the highest form of blessing that you can ever experience. I wonder if it's time that we actually started believing him. Because we live in in a world that's been trying it the other way for a really long time and it's failed over and over and over again. So what if we actually believe the words of Jesus? (laughs) Jesus. that happiness and real blessing can be found when we give our power away. We use it for the benefit of others. What if we, as Christians, actually started demonstrating meekness to one another? Even our enemies. What if we did that? What would happen? In a world where people are literally at each other's throats, What if we started reaching across ideological and theological and racial divides and started using the power that God has given us to wash their feet? What would happen? What Jesus is saying is that we'll find happiness there and blessing there. What would happen if you and I actually started demonstrating meekness in our finances? If the definition of meekness is power under control, what if we actually took our finances and we took our spending and we controlled them in such a way where they were utilized not just for our own benefit and desires, but they were able to be controlled and utilized for the benefit of others? Jesus says there's happiness there. There's blessing there in meekness. What if what if we as Christians actually began to show meekness in our jobs, in our workplaces? What if we created businesses, New Kingdom citizens? What if we created businesses where the primary aim was not to enrich ourselves, but we used that opportunity and that power to enrich the lives of the people around us? What if we became leaders of whatever organization that we're in? What if we became leaders that use our talents and our gifts not to just advance ourselves, but we actually woke up every day with the goal and the aim to use that power to advance others? Jesus says there's happiness there. There's blessing there. What if we sought, this is a big one, what if we sought to to demonstrate meekness to one another in our marriages? What, What if as Christians, as New Kingdom citizens, we became people where both spouses in the marriage, made the decision that we're both gonna use our power not to manipulate or control for our own benefit, but we're gonna use our power to bless and serve and love and wash the feet of our spouse. The promise of Jesus Christ, not me, the promise of Jesus is you will find happiness there. Side note, I'm here at the downtown campus, a lot of young people here. If you're not married yet, I want you to listen to me. I'm 45 years old, I've been married for... 23 years, is that right, Jen, 23? Yes, you don't know either. I was I was, <laughs> long time. And here's what I'm convinced. I'm absolutely convinced that the number one attribute you're looking for in a spouse is meekness. Besides being a Christian, I think the number one, number one, y'all don't believe me, but you'll know one day, The number one thing you're looking for in a spouse is meekness. Ladies, when you're trying to decide if you're gonna marry a guy or not, you don't first look at his money, you don't look at his future earning prospects, you don't first look at his eyes, you don't look at his smile, you don't look at his car, and you don't look at his abs, that's not what you look for. The first thing you look at is is he powerful, yeah? but is he using that power? Does he keep that power under control to love and to serve and to care and to honest and cherish and build you up? Or is he using it to tear you down for his own benefit? You marry a young man that looks like Jesus because one day he's gonna be 45 and he's gonna look like me and the abs are gonna be gone and you're gonna be glad he's meek. That's what you're looking for. Young men, same thing for you. I am convinced, more so than I've ever been. Uh, You know, a couple of hundred uh, failed marriages at the church later, I am convinced the number one thing you're looking for in a spouse, in a woman, besides the fact that she loves Jesus, is she meek? Do you marry a weak woman? No, you don't. You marry a strong woman, you marry a powerful woman, but you marry a, a woman that is powerful, that submits and controls that power for blessing, but not for dishonor. And if you do that, it be the best decision you ever made in your life. We live in a country that's literally dying of despair. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus showed up on the scene And he showed us a better way. And church, until he comes back again, and he's coming back, but until he comes back, it's our responsibility to show the world that better way. So let's be poor in spirit, let's mourn our sin, and let's be meek. Let's be people that submit and control the power that God has given us for the benefit of others. And when we do, not only will we inherit the earth, Jesus says, but then the world might actually see that better way in us, and they might find happiness also. All right, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its power and its clarity. I'm always amazed, God, that 2,000 years after you said those words, that they still speak so clearly and powerfully to us. Father, I I confess far too many times throughout my life, I have not been a man of meekness. That if I have pursued happiness the way the world has, I've used my power to tear down and not to build up. And I thank you that I've already seen you at work in my life in that, Lord, I pray for anybody in the room that's in that same position that you would change their hearts they would remember the night that you were about to die on a cross and how you gave us an example, and that we become people that wash each other's feet, and so the world would look at us and go, wow, something's different with them, and they'd be pointed to you, the one who can change them and save them. Father, do a great work in us. Make us a church. Make us a people that look like you. Lord, I ask that and I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together.